Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for your word. We come to give you thanks for the Spirit of God pursuing us through that word. And we're coming to ask you tonight to once again speak to our hearts, yourself, from your word and draw us out after yourself. Father, may we see clearly tonight. May we be strengthened by the Spirit of God to respond. May we be led into real fellowship, vital fellowship with who you are. And we come and trust you for that, and we're looking to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> for these few weeks we have together, we're going to be thinking about the matter concerning what, if, what is faith. Start, start with that last week, because if we don't have an adequate view of faith, where are you going to be? Because the just have to live by faith. We're justified by faith. And as I said last week, one of my big problems early on was this, that I didn't understand exactly what faith was, that general idea. But when it came down to the specifics, I wasn't clear. And so last week we began our consideration. We went back to Eve and what happened in the garden. And we saw there from that and from the book of uh, Matthew and what we call the Sermon on the Mount, came to this conclusion that faith builds on what God says. It builds its life on what God says. That's, that's the kind of the essence of the faith. It builds on, it listens to what God says, and it builds on that. Now, as we were going over that, we were thinking about Eve, we concluded in this picture with Eve having two sets of information in front of her. What God had said was the path of life, because that's ultimately what we're all looking for. We're looking for the fullest experience in life. She had that information from God as to what that was, walking with Him, and that meant staying Right and not eating from that tree. She has a second set of information. It's deceptive, but she, she has this put in front of her. The life is to be had by eating that fruit. And we saw that's typical of everything that's going to come. Everything is typical in our lives. That life is to be had by exploiting this earth for all you can get out of it. That's how you're going to find the experience of life. So she has those two sets of information in front of her. She's going to choose one of them. She's going to build on that. See, all of us are building a life. We're building a life on what we actually believe. And then we said this, that in a sense, she's going to live by faith one way or the other. She's either going to live in the faith that what the serpent said was true or what God said was true. And she chose the serpent and she suffered for it. She's going to find out that uh, she built on the wrong foundation. Now, that's true in a sense, but I want to back off of that just a little bit and say that Although we could say that she's going to live by faith in one way or the other, the Bible never uses the word faith to describe how unbelievers live their life trusting in lies. Faith is always used biblically with respect to an attitude towards the Word of God and the truth that's revealed in that Word. So that's important for us as we come to our, our consideration tonight. It's always used for the positive. There's no, it's never, it's never identified with anything but a real relationship or a real attitude and a right attitude towards God. After Adam sinned, he died. That's what it said would happen, and that's what happened. In the day that you eat from it, you'll die, and he did die. His relationship with God was severed on that day. He doesn't really know it. And in the fullest sense, he knows something went wrong. <laughs> and he's hiding in the bushes, trying to stay away from God. Then there is this wonderful passage in the Word of God. God is, or Adam has sinned, and it, it says that in the cool of the evening, that's a period later, it seems that there's a period where God left him there, but in the cool of the evening, God came to him, and he sa- says, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Now, the God who is described in the Old Testament doesn't need to know where God or Adam is. We considered that a couple years ago. <laughs> when we think about God, He is the God who knows our down-sittings, our uprisings, our thoughts are far off. There's nothing hidden from Him. Nothing is hidden from God. Adam wasn't successfully hiding from God. God didn't need information from Adam, but God had come to that place because God, the eternal God, was pursuing Adam. 
And to understand what we're going to talk about tonight, we have to first understand that the God described in the Word of God is a God who in our in our lost condition comes to seek us, comes to find us. If you went through the book of the Old Testament, you'd find this. There's not a lot of different people described there, but it's always the same picture, God coming to them. We, on your paper there, you've got after you've got um, Abraham. Abraham just living his life in Ur. There's no indication in the Word of God that he had any desire or thought concerning God. And then it says, this is the way Stephen describes it, and the God of glory appeared unto Abraham. He came to him. That's why Abraham could seek God. He could follow God because God first came to him. And we're going to go through this very rapidly because we want to get to another point. But um, there's a pattern here. As soon as he responds, as Abraham responds in faith to God and begins to follow him out from where he lived in Ur and to a new place, God then makes him a person who will pursue others. If you will follow me, then your life will become a blessing. Others will be blessed through it. The whole world will be blessed through it if you will follow. I'm going very rapidly, but you go on down to the man Moses, because he's going to be key to us tonight also. Here's another man. He's in, he's in Egypt, and he hears the word of God from probably through his mother. And because of that hearing of the word of God, which the word coming to him, God coming to him, he begins to seek. And eventually he'll get out there in the wilderness and he'll be kind of discouraged and feel like he's kind of blown his life and the God of glory appears to him in a burning bush, right? He appears to him and he calls him to follow him. And as soon as he starts to follow him, what does he do with him? He takes him out to make him a blessing to other people because he will become the leader of that nation to get them out of out of Egypt. That nation that was called to know God didn't live up to their possibilities. And as they moved apart, God would come. This is the story of the Old Testament. He would come to individuals and he would he would speak to them. And once he spoke to them and got hold of them, men like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, he speaks to them, calls them to himself. And then what does he do? He takes them out and he starts to seek other men through him. This pursuit of God, of mankind, is just extremely important. Of course, it culminates, it comes to its height in one sense, when the Lord Jesus Christ, that is God Himself, becomes a man, comes to this earth so that we can know Him. We don't have to grope after God, as as Paul says at one point. God revealed Him to us, revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But even after the Lord comes and presents and, and shows who He is, then he continues to pursue. And so we have men like Paul. Paul going his own way. Paul actually opposing God. And God comes to him and arrests Paul in his, his tracks and turns him around and then uses him to lead others to God. This pursuit of God is extremely important. In fact, the only reason I have any confidence in Speaking the word of God is because I believe that the eternal God is pursuing people. If he weren't pursuing, if it was left to my ability to persuade, my ability to get to people's mind, then it would be hopeless. But I, I, I speak the word of God because I believe that God is pursuing people. Now, I don't know. I don't know who. I don't know how. But I know these out there. And it's very important to what we're considering tonight. God pursues. Now, <clears throat> there is a picture in the Word of God of the condition of mankind. I use it all the time. I think it's the easiest one for most of us to understand what's, what, how God perceives what's going on. It comes with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53 is talking about the condition of man before as he talks about how God would come to get us. He says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. Now, what he's saying there is that, again, it, it's a picture. You just think of it. The picture of a shepherd standing in the middle of sheep, but he stands there and all of a sudden all the sheep begin to go off. They're just going off. They go this way. They go that way. They don't all go the same way. <laughs> Can you imagine being the shepherd? <laughs> Have a hundred sheep and they start going different directions. And your job is to somehow corral them. But that's, not, again, it, it must, 
quite an interesting picture, but this sheep goes this direction, this sheep goes that direction. And that's what, that's the description of the human race from God's perspective. They're not all going the same way. They don't all take the same path. When they come to the conclusion that Eve did, that life will be found when I take all I can, get everything I can from this world, from this life, from the things around me, they don't all go the same direction. Some go into sensuality. Some go into business. Some climb high mountains. And you can go on and on and on with all the different things that we can do, but they're all going away from God. And that's the picture that we have here, that the one thing they all have in common is they have turned their back on God. And they are going a different direction. God pursues. It's a wonderful truth. He pursues them. He doesn't leave them out there. There are multiple pictures of that. And He comes to them. And in a sense, He taps them on the shoulder. Now again, you can look at it different ways, and that's not a biblical phrase, but anyway... He arrests their attention. If you know the Lord today, you can, you can look back to that time when God came to you. Unless you were, again, born in a Christian home where you just don't remember what it was like to be out there. But if you remember what it was like to be out there, then you know when the God of glory started appearing to you, when, when the Lord Himself came to you. It's a wonderful thing. And again, it's one of the reasons I preach the Word, because I know someone preached the Word to me and God pursued me. And I do remember the wonderful moment when I was aware that it wasn't preaching, that it wasn't just good Bible exposition. It was God Himself. It was between me and God in that Word. And the person who was standing there was only delivering it. It was not them. And it wasn't between the two of us. It was between me and the living God. Wonderful day. It was a terrible day, but it was a wonderful day. Right now, when he came to that point, when anybody comes to that point, then we get to the verse we have today. You're going to do something about it. And so I want to look at at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a section on faith. And... I want to read just a couple verses from that. Hebrews chapter 11. And what's happened here is he's described, he said, the just, it's in the end of chapter 10, he says that the just live by faith. And then in chapter 11, he begins to describe faith and to give illustrations of faith. And in verse 5, he gives the illustration of the man Enoch. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Just a few things to learn from this verse, but we're trying to build a picture of faith. First thing I want you to note concerning this um, passage is it this that in chapter in verse six he says that it, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's one of the reasons we have to have these, these considerations, right? Because if it's if we have to have it in order to please God, it would do us well to find out what it is we have to have. Exactly what does that look like? And that's why we're thinking about that. So without it, you can't please God. But by implication, and that's he's coming off another verse, faith pleases God. Faith pleases God. I wonder if you thought about that. (laughs) I don't know how. I was always nervous about my relationship with God. Again, being raised in a perfectionist family, that gets tough. You you know, nothing was ever right, so... You know, is my relationship with God right? It's a wonderful traverse. Faith pleases God. Your life, my life, could be pleasing to God. Pleasing. Again, there's God's all. He, he does come to us. He deals with our sin. He does all those things. But faith pleases God. I want to say the men that are described in this book or in this chapter who please God by their faith were a long way from perfect men. 
the list of sins we could compile that the group of men committed who are listed in here as pleasing to God, it's quite a list. Murder. Anyway, we're not going to get all of them. But that's a pretty good start, murder. You know, how could a person who is guilty of murder please God? Well, God, the, the Word of God wants you to understand that. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. But with faith, it is possible. And I, and I want to hammer <laughs> that home. Faith pleases God. Now, that's important for us with regards to this story because you got the story of Enoch, right? Now, I'm not going to go there because it's getting a little bit late and I don't want, I've got a long way to go. But if you go back to the book of Genesis and find out the story of Enoch, here's, I can almost quote it, all right? And I didn't try to memorize it. And Enoch walked with God. But that's, that's what it says about his life. It tells you his son, it tells you who his father was. It tells you his son is Methuselah. Methuselah has the longest life in the Old Testament, all right? But the only other thing it tells you about this man is that he walked with God and then something happened. At the young age of 365, he was taken home, right? And although 365 years just sounds like, oh man, to be on this earth for 365 years. But his son Methuselah is going to go a lot longer than that. That's only a third of what most men were living. And the picture is that because Enoch walked with God, God said, you know what, you're going to get an early out because the world is getting pretty rough about that time. We're moving towards the flood. We're moving toward the time when violence was everywhere. And it seems that in a, as a reward for walking with God for a period of time, the Lord just said, I'm not going to let you go through all that. I'm going to take you out of here. Enoch walked with God. Now, that's important to me because of the things it doesn't say that Enoch did. Other men were told, built cities developed agriculture, developed metallurgy, developed music and arts. They were doing great things on the earth. But what did Enoch do? This is the only thing that God said about Enoch. It's so important that Enoch walked with God. That's something. Now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say he walked with God. He says his life was pleasing to God. Now, the only thing that really matters about your life is whether you walk with God. That's all that really matters. What you accomplish in terms of things we build, they're going to go. The reputations we have... They'll disappear with the cultures that go. The only thing that really matters is that you walk with God. And that's that's the point here. Now, Enoch walked with God, and he says that he was pleasing to God in that. Now, in describing that, then again, <clears throat> what this has to do with faith, the writer of Hebrews says this, Well, faith is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder, of those who seek him. Without faith is impossible to please him. But he says, first of all, those that come to God, those that come to God. And think about that for just a moment, back to that picture. Remember, all we like sheep gone astray? We turned everyone to our own way. We're all drifting out this way. And the picture we said then is that as we're going out here, if there wasn't a God in heaven who loved us and cared about us and was of the kind of being that he is, we would have been hopeless. But he came and sought us, okay? He comes out there and he speaks to us. And the picture here is that some of those who are, are going astray are going to turn around. This is where that whole idea of repentance comes. Every way that we're going is taking us away from God. It may not even be considered evil, wrong. could be perfectly just inside the bounds of the law, inside of all the uh, requirements that men have for you. But it has one. They, we all have one common problem. The great requirement of God for the human race is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And nobody is doing that by nature. 
and God comes out to get us. All right. Now, at that point, a person has a chance to turn around. All right? You have a chance to turn around. Now, it's a great picture because if you turn around, then the things that you're after are over there, and you're going to put that behind you. Maybe repentance is not necessary. It has to be because if you, you can't have two masters. That's what part of what was in that Sermon on the Mount. You can't have two masters. You can't sit there in the middle halfway turn with one eye looking that way and one eye looking this way. You're going to go to God or you're going to go this way. But he says, he who comes to God, he who makes this turn and goes towards God. Something's going to be true of that person. And that's what God has, again, I want to say, for all of us here. Right? Um, at one point, picking this whole concept up, Peter says this in First Peter. He says this, we were all going astray like sheep. But now, he's talking about people who have made that turn, now we have done what? We have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. We, we, we were going that way, we were going stray, but we haven't done, what have we done? We have turned around. He who comes to God, we've turned around, and now we are going towards God. We have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Later on in that book, he will say this concerning the Lord and what he did on the cross. He said he died once for all. Beautiful thought. Once for all. There's one sacrifice. There's enough to finish the issue concerning sin. He died once for all. The just, that's Jesus, the just one, for the unjust. That's all the rest of us. But he says this is the purpose in order that he might come and bring us to God. In essence, to take us by the hand and lead us to God. Because the whole purpose of God in salvation is not to deliver you from hell. It is to get you to God. It is to bring you into a relationship with Him because to know Him is life. So the first step in this verse you have to understand is it ha- it's turning towards God. Now, the reason I say that is this. If you have a concept of faith that doesn't have fundamental to it a turning and a coming to God, your view of faith is deficient. Right? The faith pursues God. Now that's important because, um, again, we don't want to spend too long on that. We have before. There are whole, there's whole versions of Christianity out there. Whole versions of, uh, they profess to be teaching the Bible. It would tell you that if you have enough faith, you can get big cars, big houses, great families, great jobs. That the use of faith is in order to build my life on this earth. Now that should sound a little bit serpent-like, right? Because the serpent says that life is to be found on this earth. It's to be found by exploiting this earth and there's idolatry has as its core going to a God and finding a God who will give to me where real life, what real life is. The people of the Old Testament that served idols did not love those idols. They did not have, they didn't worship those idols. They served them so that they could get something from them. And what were they after? They were after the things of this earth because that's what everyone in the human race believes will give them life. Faith comes to God. It comes to God. That's why the Lord could rebuke the the, um, the Pharisees. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But what's it say? But there are those which speak of me, and you won't come to me. And if you understand that, then you, you also understand so many of the appeals of the Lord in, his, in the Gospels. And we're just going to mention a few of them. Come unto me. He says, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. If any man thirsts, what should he do? Let him come to me. Let him come to me. He's not saying let him ask me for for water. He says, come to me. And we could go on and on with the appeals of the Lord to people. It wasn't a call to come and, and take on a particular way of life. It was a call to come to him personally, which involved all sorts of other things. Now, so the, the essence, we want to say here, when we're thinking about faith, it is it builds on 
what God says, but what God says is always going to lead you towards himself. So it's building on what God says, but it is building towards the Lord himself. So again, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Again, I know we're kind of wandering here, but what's it say in there? We said that Jesus says at the end, if you hear the, have this word and you build your life on it, then you're going to be on the rock. But what are some of the things that he said in there? Well, just think, think of a few of them. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those hunger and thirst for righteousness. A little bit later on, he's going to say things such as, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Don't fake it. Live before God. That means coming to God, right? You're going to be coming to God. No man can serve two masters, he says. You're either going to love one, hate the other, hold to one, forsake the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, that building is all building that gets you closer to God. So when we say they're building, yeah, that's true. We're building our life. But it's not just a matter of, of doing the right thing. It's not a matter of keeping the law. It's a matter of getting to God. Faith has as its goal God himself. We have a hymn that we used to sing. Don't sing them too much anymore, but anyway, my goal is God himself, not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but himself, my God, his to lead me there. Not mine, but his, by any path, dear Lord, at any cost. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly the way it was, because it's a long time since I looked at it, but all those lines are in there somewhere, all right? But then it says in the next one, so faith bounds forward to its goal in God. It's picking up that thought. For he who comes to God, he who comes to God. That's what faith does. But he says there's two things that, that, that we have to believe as we come to God. Two things that we must grab hold of as we come to God. The first is this. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and then it says in the rewarder. But the first thing is that God, we must believe that he is. Now, that sounds pretty simple, right? But what he's talking about here is not that just that I believe that there's a God. All right, you got to understand the book of Hebrews. Uh, he's writing. This is a Hebrew writing to other Hebrews, right? He is writing about the God, uh, about Jesus Christ, and how Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament plan. How he is the finishing of what God started in the Old Testament. When he says God, he isn't talking about a God. He is talking about the God of the Old Testament. See, we, we can't make up our own God. We, we have a habit of doing that. It's like the old dorm room discussions. I think God is like this. I think he's like that. And if you faith trace it out, that's the heart of idolatry. We're all in the same boat on that. God's a lot like me. He loves what I love. He hates what I hate. If I hate this sin, he hates that sin. If I love this sin, it's not so bad. See, I create my own God. I, 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 I construct it just like those guys, you know, you put on the idol. You, <laughs> I want it to be this. But God isn't one of those. God is described in the Word. And when He says, He who comes to God must believe that He is, He has to believe that the revelation that God has given concerning Himself is accurate. The God who is described there is the true God. He's gone to great extents, that is the living God has gone to great extents to try to convince us, to show to us that He is there and this is what He's like. There is the witnesses we've seen over the last couple of weeks, or last week we saw, but we've, we've, last year we were thinking about it again. There is the witness of creation around us that testified to the greatness of who He is. But there's also the Word of God which was given over a long period of time, which continually testifies that I'm here. And as you accept the fact that it's there, then you begin to see that this is the kind of God there is. He says that he who comes to God must believe that that's who he is. But that's not enough. All right? That's not enough. That's only half the way there. Because you can hold to a belief that that's the way God is and be a wow a long way from God. I grew up in a Methodist church. I've said that many, many times. We knew what we knew by ritual, right? You read from the prayer book. I believe in 
And every week we would say it. I won't try to recite it because it's been a long time, but I'll get all mixed up in exactly how it runs. But it was, we were catechized by the, by the prayer book. This is what we believe about Jesus. This is what we believe about the Holy Spirit. This is what we believe about the church. That's all, and it was all accurate. It's accurate to the word. I said that every week. And actually, I did believe that. I believed that the God who was described in the Bible was the true God. I believed that. I never took too seriously, but I did believe it. So anybody asking me what God was like, this is what I would say. And being a typical person from western Pennsylvania, if they wanted to have an argument about it, I would argue even though I didn't care. All right? So it was just, you know, we argued about everything, you know. Just, let's have an argument about it. Okay. And I'll take this one and I'll say that this is the God that's out there and this is how he's revealed himself and all the rest of it and didn't believe a thing. But I did, well, I say, but I didn't believe a thing. It was what I actually believed. I would have passed, I would have checked it off on that. Jesus, a trinity. He's, he's all wise. He's all powerful. He's creator of all things. <laughs> now that's necessary, but not sufficient. That's what we would say in chemistry. That's a necessary requirement, but it's not sufficient. You have to come that far, but James reminds us that you can come that far and you're just like the devil because the devil knows he's out there. The devil has no doubt about the existence of God and the character of God. He's been up against it all as long as he's existed. But he's never come to God. That's the point. He's never come to him. Right? So he says that the first step is what? You must believe that he is. And here comes the big one. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. This is, this is what faith does. It trusts in the living God. This is who he is. But then it comes this conclusion. He rewards those who seek him. Now, what's important about that? Well, anybody would seek a God that rewards him. Well, no, that's not the point either. The question is about this reward. Why don't people come to God after they see what kind of a God, if I tell them, describe it accurately, why didn't I come to God when I was 15 and believed all those things? I didn't come to God. I didn't take it too seriously because I had big ambitions for my life. I was still one of those sheep, and I had I had my plan out there. I'd gone astray. I didn't even know I was astray because I tried to stay inside the bounds of the the things you're supposed to do. I didn't commit it. it you know, I didn't mess with the ladies, and I didn't get drunk, and I didn't do all those things. I sort of I tried to be good boy. But while I was being a good boy, I also had myself right at the center of things. My well-being, my plan, my, how I was going to be something in life. Now, point being that you can get between the two of them. You can come to the place where you have believed, but why don't you go out here? Because in order to come to Him, I have to turn my back on that. It's just that simple. There comes a point. Now, what I have to turn my back on is the concept that life is there. Right? The concept that life is there. Okay, you got that? Okay, because all of us live in a house. All right? I think. Anyway, you live somewhere. All right? We have to have a house to live in. That house could be the whole of my goal. I could be aiming at that house because I hope that by having a house, the right house, a big house, a house with all the gadgets that do all the kinds of things it could do, that would bring me life. All right? I'm going to live in a house anyway. When Abraham left Ur, he went somewhere else, and they, he also lived, he had to do all these things, but a changing concept takes place. I have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And that means that I have to believe that the reward of getting to know God is big enough to step away from that as a reward. Does that make sense? This is real important. Because unless you come to that conclusion, you're caught between two masters. You kind of want to know God, and you kind of want to know this world. And the Bible's crystal clear on this. If you don't sort that out, the world will win. It always wins. The thorns win if I don't deal with the thorns at the beginning. Make sense? 
Now, why don't people turn? I want to say that I think there's three reasons why people don't turn. You can just, this is kind of in a general sort of way. First one is, is a pride issue. Some don't even care. Some look and say, well, this is all for God. I, I really don't want to know God. I don't, I don't care. They're having a good enough time on this earth. Things are going well enough. I, I just don't want to turn. I don't, why do it? All right. Second way, I'd say there's a greed problem. There's something that, again, set it aside completely. But the next two are more important to us. The second one, they kind of agreed that what is out there is so valuable that I don't want to. It's not. I, I, I put a ledger out here. I said, this is the value of this earth. This is the value of God. And I come to the conclusion that this earth is more valuable than knowing God. And, and that's, I've said it before here. And, and again, I'm not trying to be cute about it. I'm just trying to tell you, people don't go to hell because they sin in all the terrible ways we think they sin. The reason that people miss eternity with God is this. God went to great expense to make it possible for you to know him. And you say, I don't care. It's it's passing up his opportunity because he comes tapping on the shoulder. Don't you want to? You say no, and you you can get like Esau. Again, this is for those who don't familiar with all the stories of the Old Testament. It says Esau, who did what? Who sold his inheritance? He sold his inheritance, which involved a spiritual inheritance as well as a, a physical inheritance. He sold the whole thing because one day he was hungry. And the writer of Hebrews, same writer, he says, "Don't do that." You have great opportunity. You have the opportunity to know God. You have the opportunity to work with God, to to experience who He is and to be on His side on this earth and also help others, bless others in all this. Don't set it all aside to get something that isn't going to last. A single meal. A popsicle. Make it in our own day because we don't eat a mess of pottage, do we? A milkshake. Got to have it. Got to have it. Got to have it. And see, that's, that's the second reason. Now, there's a third reason. So some don't. They just don't care. Some wait it out. And they say, you know what? This world, it's, it's not worth giving up. That what God has to offer isn't enough to ca- counter this. Then there are some who will come to the conclusion, well, maybe it is worth it. And this, this one really, I'll say to you, if you're in that category, some wonder whether it could mean anything to me. Right? And this is also part of here. Do it mean anything to me? That if I were to set aside this, and I, I set aside the dreams, that's what's out there, and I turn around and go after God, does He care enough? Will I get there? Will it mean anything? Will it ultimately, will I come to the place where I will be rewarded? And I, I do realize I, I met enough people who have been beaten up enough in life to where they believe if you turn to your God, doesn't really even care. And so they don't seek out of the fear that if they did seek, they still wouldn't get there. And they're not willing to give up this for nothing. It's not that they've weighed this. If they could get to God, if they could know that the relationship would be right and that they could experience all that, they would turn, but they're not convinced of that. Well, let me just say that the promise of God, if you want to build your life, the promise of God is this, that everyone who asks, everyone who asks, receive. And everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, for everyone that knocks, the door will be open. That's what he said. That's the God, if you're going to believe that he is, that's who he is. It's a promise to every human being. If any man, he doesn't say if some men, he says if any man thirsts, if any one of you thirsts, come to me. If you're laboring and you're heavy laden and you're worn out in life, come to me. All right? I'm going to give you rest. He will fulfill his promises. He does do what he says he's going to do. The value of that is, is described in this chapter in a couple of stories, a number of stories, but I'm going to look at two of them. I want to just think about them 
to help us see what, what we're talking about here. First is the story of Abraham, right? The story of Abraham, which is what comes immediately. Well, not immediately. Noah's in there, but then Abraham comes up. There are two stories that dominate the book or the chapter. First is the story of Abraham. Abraham, just real quick, for those who aren't familiar with the story, he lived in a place, that he would, and he was a city dweller in a place called Ur. Um, it was a big town, very important city at that particular time. We don't know anything about him except that the word God's pretty clear from the other books that he wasn't seeking after God, and God comes and speaks to him. But if he's going to follow God, he says, I want you to follow me, but you have to follow me out of here. You have to follow me out of here. He's 75 years old, so he, was, he hadn't just started. And he said, I'm gonna, I want you to follow me. And he did. See, he who comes to God must believe that he is. And it, he didn't have a lot to go on, but there is. God of glory had revealed himself to him. And that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. And he began to seek. God didn't make him wealthy immediately. He doesn't fix family things. He doesn't do all those other things. What does he do? He just keeps leading him. He keeps leading him. Leading him out into a lonely place. He ends up, he lives from the city. Now he's going to live in a tent. A tent in a remote area of the world at that particular time. A wilderness sort of an area. A wild west sort of an area. And he lived there for the next hundred plus years. During Abraham's life, he never really got much from God. Now, he was wealthy, but that wealth caused him all kinds of trouble. He was promised certain things that God would do in the future, but he never saw any of them fulfilled. He never saw any of it fulfilled. What did God do for him? And I speak to students, it's very important for them as they come here to get this cross that god only promises you one thing in life if you'll follow him you'll get to know him that's the only thing he promises we can't have promises of what might happen to us because he might use us one way or another way i don't know what might happen to you in life and that's not the important thing the important thing is what you walk with god and abraham did and in a sense he doesn't get much out of this <laughs> he finishes up he's not very far along except for this he could come to a point, I'm just going to use this one illustration, where he was a little disturbed one day because he had taken a step on the behalf of his nephew and it got him in a little bit of trouble and he was in a very dangerous place. And he said, I'm a little afraid of this. And God came and said to him, don't be afraid. I am a shield to you. How about that? I'm a shield to you. Abraham, your life is, is he's a rewarder of those that seek him. I've got a wall of fire around you. You're okay. And then he said something else, which is very important, and it can be translated different ways, but it says this, that I am your reward. I'm your reward. That's what the writer of Hebrews picks up. He says, even though things went poorly, he never went home to Ur. He never went back. He never went back to that place where he lived before. Why doesn't he go back? Because his whole vision has changed. He stopped looking for something on this earth to satisfy him, he has started looking towards God. And when he starts looking towards God, it says this, and he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He was looking outside of this earth. He had stopped trying to get anything out of this. He was going to commit himself to God and the plan God had for him in the future. And then comes this again. You read it in the, the passage there. And it says this wonderful thing. I think this is tremendous. Therefore, what does it say? God was not ashamed to be called his God. He prepared that place for him. It's interesting. Abraham, who didn't really accomplish much in his life, he just lived in a place. And what does it say concerning him? It's the, it's the only one in the Old Testament says it. He was the friend of God. God's friend. Not a perfect man. But he had turned, he had come to God. He believed he was, and he was a rewarder of those that sought him. Had his bumps and bruises along the way, but he sought God, and he found him. Moses. I think Moses is more important for us uh, as a whole because it, it fits more into our situation. We live in a very privileged age, a very privileged age. The wealth 
and the opportunity of our time on this earth is so enormous compared to the rest of the human race that it's it's just almost unspeakable. <laughs> you have to do some history lessons to, to figure out. Very few people have had it. Well, Moses was one of the people who did have it. Because of the manipulation of God into circumstances, Moses grew up as a prince in Egypt. In the ancient world, a few people had it all, and the rest supported them. Most people lived in a 12 by 12 blockhouse. That's all, that was your, that was your home. And you raised your kids there. And the palace was there for the royal family. Moses grew up in that royal family. But he was nursed and he was brought up under the tutelage of his mother, who was a Jew, a Hebrew. And she taught him, apparently, what God had said. One of the things that God said that would have been out there, which is part of the heritage of Hebrew people, was this, that God had made a promise to, Ab- or to, right, to Abraham, and it said this, that I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. And it seems that one day Moses got hold of this and realized that in his palace, with all of the privilege of palace, with all of the potential of of being a prince in Egypt, he was in the wrong place. He was in the wrong side. Because no matter how good it goes in this life, if you are on the wrong side with God, you're on the wrong side. What will profit a man if he gets everything this world has to offer and he loses his soul? Moses looked at that and made one of the most astounding choices of the Old Testament. He chose to give up his position as a prince so he could be identified with a group of loser slaves. That's all they were. There is no evidence whatsoever that the blessing of God was on them. There is no evidence at that point in time that the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled, but it was the Word of God, and Abraham decided that it was better to seek God with those people than to be identified with Egypt. That's quite a decision. Study his life. It, uh, he gets in all kinds of trouble after that. He gets kicked around a lot. He'll spend the rest of his life after he finally gets back and he he leads his people. Yeah, he becomes the great leader of the country. (laughs) He led them out in the wilderness and he died in the wilderness. He never got them to where they were supposed to go. What was the benefit of all that? What, What value was that to him? One thing he did get. Right? He wasn't able to successfully lead other people. And one thing you know about this, we all have to face. No person can control the heart of another person. You can appeal to them, you can, but you can't control them. They make their own decisions. But there came a day when that faith that had come to God and wanted to be rewarded by God, by knowledge of God, came to him. You know, It was a dark hour, but he says this, Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God did. He died in the wilderness. And I go out there and look at that place. Forty years eating manna in a, in a dismal place. But he got to know God. He was the servant of God. And it says in the, word, in the Old Testament that and he spoke to God face to face. Face to face. The servant of the Lord. Now, the important thing, again, this, these are both stories that are coming up, but saying here, what is, what is the essence of the faith? The faith that we have not only builds on what God says, but it builds on what God says in order that it might get to God. Faith has as its goal God, he who comes to God. And when a man turns from that and makes God the center of his life, it pleases God. He doesn't earn anything from God. It just means that the purpose of God has been fulfilled, and that's a good thing. 
We're not saying that faith earns anything. Faith just takes hold of God. But when the purpose of God is fulfilled as a man leaves that and grips this and puts his whole hope in knowing God, there is a... It gains the approval of God. This man is approved. That's what we said last week. He talks at the end of the chapter. Not everybody had a good show, but there were men who conquered kingdoms, opened the mouths of lions, all sorts of different things. They said then some of them were tortured. Some of them were imprisoned. And some of them went around in sheepskins and goatskins, but says this, men of whom the world was not worthy. The world kicked them around, but it didn't matter to God. They were pleasing to God. Because it says all these, having pleased God, gained approval to God. They never received on this earth what he had promised in his fullness. But they will. They will. So what's faith? Well, so far we've seen this. Faith builds on what the Word of God says. Builds in the sense that it begins to structure its life around what God had to say. Just like Moses did. Just like Abraham did. We have a whole lot more to structure around. But as it structures, it sees this, that the goal of life is to know God. And it comes to Him. It comes to Him by turning from the other things that potentially are out there, which offer or, or promise life, which it has concluded from the Word of God, can't be done. And it turns to God. Where are you tonight? That's, that's the important thing for all of us. Where are we with, regress, with respect to all that? Come to that place where we've, we've ever finally concluded in your heart. It's not there. It's not there. i got a great burden for this because it's possible to listen to all the messages, to go through all these things, to have, check off all the right boxes, and still believe that it's out there. And if you still believe it's out there, you will sooner or later go to get it. Because you can't live without the satisfaction. You can't live without what God can do in your heart. You're going, if you don't find it in Him, you can't possibly continue without going back to that world. So a person has to make a decision. Which is it? Faith comes to this conclusion. God said it. It's true. And I'm going to seek Him. I'm going to seek Him. And turns around. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you to work in our hearts to enable us to understand your word. Father, we're asking you tonight, as you come to seek us, that you will strengthen hearts by the Spirit of God so that you might be at home in our hearts by faith. And we might know then what it is to lay down our lives in love for one another and for love for other people and bringing them to a knowledge of God. Do the deep thing in our heart. We trust you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.